If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com circular. Visit ikea-usa.com circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Anytime fitness is for real people with real fitness goals. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us aren't training for marathons or half marathons or even half half marathons. Only time most of us are running at all is if we're trying to make a connecting flight. Wouldn't have been late if we didn't stop to buy a headphone dongle. Point is, you got to be ready. You do not want to deal with rebooking. Anytime fitness, where real people help you make real progress. Join today and get a plan for training, nutrition, and recovery. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the popular imagination, the Western Front of the First World War has long been synonymous with futility and deadlock. But in his new book, military historian Nick Lloyd argues that this was far from the case. In fact, it was a cauldron of innovation and an epic struggle against the odds. Nick has also written the cover feature for the March issue of BBC History magazine about this subject. And in today's episode, he expanded on these themes in conversation with the magazine's editor, Rob Attar. Nick, your book and your article for the magazine focus specifically on the Western Front. Um, is it fair to say that this is the most important theatre of the First World War? Yeah, I think, well, it's the decisive theatre. It's the, it's the theatre that ultimately defines who, you know, who wins and who loses on the First World War. So, you know, Germany effectively wins in the Eastern Front. It dismembers Russia. It conquers Serbia. It conquers Romania. Montenegro they they can they control the Balkans and they win in that theater but ultimately they lose in the west and that's where the decision is taken and that's 
brings Germany to the brink of collapse. And of course, with Germany in collapse, everyone else collapses, all the other central powers. So in terms of the, you know, the, the decisive nature of the Western Front, there's no doubt that it's, you know, it's absolutely vital. Who wins there wins the war. And how far do you think you can tell the story of the Western Front in isolation or are the other theatres having a big impact on what's going on in um, France and Belgium? Yeah, I mean, I think this was one of the challenges I had when I was doing the book is to essentially tell the story of one theatre in a, you know, a multi-theatre war. Uh, how, how can you do that? Because clearly the Eastern Front has a massive impact on what happens on the West. The Germans are fighting a two-front war, so they have to shuttle men back and forth and they have to work out what's going to happen to the Austrians and, and this kind of thing. So, you know, it was a challenge in terms of telling the Western Front as a story without giving away too much, without talking too much about the other theatres or Gallipoli and the theatres in the Middle East is crucial for Britain. You know, resources are being sent uh, to the Mediterranean and that affects how many troops they have on the West. But nevertheless, I did think the the story of the Western Front is still quite self-contained. It's where the bulk of the armies of obviously France, Britain, Germany, and, and later on America will fight. It's their main front. And that really forces the pace in terms of what happens in the war. So I think if you look at a lot of the main characters in the story, Ferdinand Foch, Ludendorff, uh, Falkenheim, Haig, Pétain, the Western Front is their dominant experience of the war. And they, you know, in terms of the characters that I was trying to talk about, their war is in the West. You know, other things happen in the other theatres, but it's only periphery. It's only a sort of addendum. It's not the main act. So I think, you know, if you look at it from the people who are actually on the Western Front, that was where the war was. Um, and I think that's part of the story I was trying to tell. Now, the popular vision of the Western Front is that this is a place where huge numbers of people are killed on both sides without that much progress being made over the course of four years. Is it fair to say that you would disagree with that view? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's not just myself. There's been generations of historians that have tried to challenge the, if you like, the Blackadder myth of the war, uh, lions and donkeys, which still retains quite a hold in popular culture. Uh, the First World War, trench warfare, it's a byword for stupidity and callousness. So that has essentially become an established uh, social cliche in many ways, or cultural cliche. Um, so I'm not the only one who's challenged that. But I think what I try and do is see it in a bigger context. So when I talk about the French war and the German war and the Western Front, and it's a terrible experience for all of the countries on the Western Front, but it's a different experience. And I think a lot of the problem with the British narrative of the war, it focuses solely on the British story. And of course, we look at it and say that was terrible and it was ultimately stupid and all these kind of things. And I think you have to look at what the Germans are doing and you have to look at what the French are doing. And I think if you look at all of that, you get a much more satisfactory look at the war and you can see what the Allies are trying to do, the tactics, the techniques, the technology they're employing. And then you see the counter. So you see what the Germans then do to try and work around that. And you see that for four years. So I think um, I think that's one of the strengths of the book is you get to see the the whole story in terms of the dance of technology and tactics and how they evolve and shape and the mistakes that are made along the way and the people who have insights that you know aren't capitalized upon. And so you get to see the whole way it rises and falls. So I think going back to the lions and donkeys and the, and the myths of the Western Front, I think you have to see 
the whole experience to be able to make any kind of assessment as to who was good, who was incompetent and all that kind of thing. So, you know, again, four years is not that long, actually, you know, if you think about it, uh, how long we were in Afghanistan and Iraq. But again, you look at the enormous changes that took place over that four years, which I detail in the book and and obviously in the article that, you know, it's mind boggling how much changes it really is. And I think too often we sort of think those changes were inevitable or they were just par for the course when in fact they were radical they were revolutionary and they changed the nature of war i was interested in something you were saying earlier about how the different countries approach it differently so i I wonder if from the french perspective they see it very differently because for them they were being invaded so this idea of a futility of war must be a bit more hollow when they were trying to recover their own country absolutely you you get a very a very clear sense of the war is near to them it's it's directly in their country it's it's close to paris it gets the germans get quite close to paris numerous times um so there is an obvious rationale for fighting the war there's a clear need to get the germans out of france and belgium and so everyone recognizes the war has to be fought you know how the war is fought is a, is a maybe a different question but there's no doubt that the Germans must be defeated. And I guess the question is, you know, the memory of the First World War is, of course, soured by, you know, the collapse in 1940 and Vichy and all that. But if you look at the story of France, it's very much about trying to, you know, avenge 1870, but also to break German power, which, you know, they believe they, they can't survive as a country without Germany dominant in Europe. So, um, again, the French story is very different and... Clearly, tactics and technology is one part of the story, but the rationale for the war, I think, is is much more secure than perhaps it was in Britain. So um, the Western Front is famously characterised by trench warfare. Why did this take place in this particular theatre at this particular time? Was it something about the military strategy, the technology of the time that allowed this to flourish? Yeah, well, you get um, you get periods of manoeuvre on the Western Front. I mean, people think that it's trench warfare from day one, and of course it isn't. It's trench warfare really from the close of 1914. And by, obviously, the spring of 1918, when you get the German spring offensive, so most of 1918 is effectively manoeuvre warfare with uh, periods of positional warfare. So if we like the memory of the war and our image of the, the Western Front is 19. 19- 15, 1916, a bit of 1917. It's the sort of middle period where you get the big trench battles and the attritional battles, which sort of define the memory of the war. So again, trench warfare is only part of it, but it's it comes about through a combination of factors. It's firepower, lack of manoeuvre, too much firepower, too many men in too small a space. So it gets constricted and you have enormous power of defensive weaponry, machine guns, rifles, um, and of course trenches which protect men. And at the time, the if you like, the technology that you would need to go onto the offensive is not as well established. It's much harder to do. You have to coordinate artillery and infantry much more, you know, tightly than you would need in a defensive battle. You need to work out problems with communications, which they never really solve in the war. So. One of the big, big problems is communication. So you can get communications up to the front line. You know, you can get um, obviously telephones, wireless, all that kind of thing. Um, once you go over the top, you're not in communication anymore. So commanders in the rear often don't know what's going on. They can't work out where to send reserves, where to reinforce, where to move. Because 
you can you can string telephone wire you can use wireless which can be intercepted you can use pigeons you can use dogs you can use runners but they're not reliable methods of communication and it's very difficult to move across no man's land when it's it's under heavy bombardment so communication is one of the factors that uh you know produces trench warfare you see trench warfare everywhere in the first world war but obviously on the western front it's it's the most you know the deepest you get you can't really have as much trench warfare in the eastern front because the the terrain is so vast, so you never get the concentration of force that you do in the West. So it's it's the it's a concentration of as a sort of small location, lots of men, lots of firepower means you have to go to ground. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There are commanders that are too cavalier with their men, but there are other commanders that care deeply about what they're doing and you know, are heartbroken and and don't really know a way out. They don't know how they're going to do it. So John French, the British commander-in-chief until the end of 1915, talks about, you know, his room being sort of full of ghosts because he's he's lost so many friends. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Now, there were several attempts to break through with uh, notoriously battles such as the Somme, Passchendaele, Verdun. And these two have often been described as incidents of futility, of great waste of lives. Do you have any more sympathy for the commanders here and for, the, for what happened in these battles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the enormous challenges of command in the First World War has been, you know, I discuss in the book, and it's very difficult to do things. There was the the quotation 
by Charles Manjan, who's one of the French commanders in the book. And he says, whatever you do, you lose a lot of men. So, you know, in the First World War, if you make mistakes, if you don't get things right, if your artillery is not right, you can get absolutely slaughtered. In the First World War, if you get everything right, you do your artillery well, you move infantry up, you have good intelligence, you can still get slaughtered. So I think the, the problems of command and communication, the problems of coordinating firepower are beyond individual generals. And, you know, there's huge debates that go on during the war as to the correct sort of operation you should conduct, what kind of operations you should conduct, whether it should be breakthrough, whether you need to restore maneuver uh, to the war. You know, you, trench warfare is essentially abnormal. So you need to break through, smash up the trenches, and then, you know, get the armies moving again. Problem is, it's very difficult to do that because the amount of force you need to break the trench deadlock means that all the roads and all the tracks are all shattered and blown to pieces. It's much easier for def- you know the defender to move up guns, ammunition, and, and contain the breach than it is for the attacker to move up manpower, cavalry, to actually break out. And so by really by the end of 1915, a number of French commanders are saying, we can't break through, we can't do this. We need to essentially not fight in a manoeuvre-based way. We need to fight in an attritional way. So the point of operations is not necessarily to break through and gain territory, but to kill the enemy. So we need to utilise artillery and force them, the enemy, into counter-attacking where we can kill them. So we need to kill more when we attack, we need to kill more of the enemy than we lose of ourselves and essentially give up hope of a breakthrough. Or at least we'll take one series of trench lines, we'll stop, we'll bring the guns up, we'll smash it again and we'll go forward. But of course, for a number of commanders, this is too limited. They just think, well, we have to liberate territory. We can't fight this way. By 1917, you know, that's really the only way you can fight. You can't really do the breakthrough. But of course, the, the techniques and tactics they've refined over the course of those two and a half years eventually allow offensive warfare to take place again and manoeuvre to be restored and then finally decision to be arrived at. And another accusation that's levelled at the, the the generals on the Allied side and presumably the German side too is that they were just too cavalier with the lives of their men they threw hundreds of thousands of young men into battle unnecessarily. Is it the case that they were uncaring about these men or was it simply they just had no better option? I think it depends. I mean, there's certain some commanders that are, you know, see the world in sort of a more of a sort of stark fashion and they, they want to do what is necessary in the sort of an orgy of violence to get the thing done. And if they have to throw people at it, they will do because they that's, in a sense, all they've got. So they could throw men at the problem and try, try and break through. But of course, that, that changes if you, you know, the, in a sense, early on in the war, you have lots of manpower and you don't necessarily have the weaponry. And if you have to do things, then you may, uh, you may have to sort of mass men, mass battalions at a certain point and hope to punch through. Obviously, by 1916, the French are weakening. They don't have the manpower. They have to increasingly replace manpower with, with material, with uh, guns and things. By 1917, the British are running out of men, so they have to rely more on mechanical means, air power, more artillery, tanks, and you know, fire, infantry firepower. So the infantry battalion gets loads more weapons so that the firepower of an infantry battalion in 1918 is is incomparable to 
1914. So there's a lot more machine guns, mortars, rifle grenades you can go on. So they increasingly have to do that. That's a necessity because they don't have the manpower. And so it's also it's more effective. And so I think there are certainly there are incompetent commanders. There are commanders that are too cavalier with their men. But there are other commanders that care deeply about what they're doing and, you know, are heartbroken and, and don't really know a way out. They don't know how they're going to do it. Sir John French, the British commander-in-chief until the end of 1915, talks about, you know, his room being sort of full of ghosts because he's he's lost so many friends. And, you know, you, you don't have to go far in the war to, to see, you know, generals that lose close family members. Um, there's one French general, uh, Castelnau, he, he loses three sons. So it's, you know, the, the Ferdinand Foch loses his only son. So they they the war touches them deeply. And they know how costly it is, but it's a big war. And if you've got millions of men on one side and million, millions of men on the other, then huge casualties are a given. I guess the debate in Britain is whether we could have done it with slightly fewer casualties, whether everything was justified. And I think that debate will go on. But it's almost inevitable, given the size and complexity of the armies, the, the enormous carnage it's going to produce. And again, even if you do everything right, there's not necessarily an easy route out, or at least not until later on in the war. So in, in your piece, you argue that the Western Front actually saw a great amount of innovation. It wasn't by any means a, a static conflict. You've already alluded to a few of these, but what do you think were the most important military developments over these years? Well, in terms of technology, I think you've got to look at artillery and air power as being you know, two of the most important ones artillery you know the the amount of artillery you know goes up by i don't know what enormous amounts of guns and and of course all the technology and tactics that goes with that so it's not just more artillery and, and better artillery it's more shells more reliable shells different kinds of fuses for the shells which allow much more accurate and effective destruction of targets um a whole technological race is on to work out how to do counter-battery fire, so how to take out enemy guns that you can't see. So you have things like flash spotting and sound raging, which is developed by scientists behind in British universities, develop these kind of techniques where they, they put microphones around the front, they uh, record the sound of an enemy gun firing, and they triangulate because of the speed again don't ask me how it's done but they triangulate the location of the enemy gun and then they put it on a big map and they work out where german guns are and then they they manage to destroy them they have flash spotting so they actually you know they have cameras and observers up and down the front to again to track the location of uh, enemy guns and then they have to find a way to accurately hit it you know hit them and that's quite quite a difficult task so increasing obviously they use air power for spotting and they use things like poison gas for as a counter battery weapon so they will uh, inundate german guns with poison gas phosgene whatever it might be that might not destroy the gun but it makes their efficiency a lot lower because it's no fun trying to fire a weapon when you're in a cloud of, of gas so Increasingly, they go do things like neutralizing enemy defenses. They know they can't destroy them all, so they try and neutralize them for a certain period of time when they will be needed so they can advance. So there's all range of developments. Air power is crucial, you know, given that the start of the war, air power is well, extremely risky, had never really been used in the in a war scenario. The Italians had used to dropped a few bombs in Libya, but 
By the end of 1914, reconnaissance from the air is vital. Uh, by the end of 1916, it's been fully integrated into artillery attack plans. They make maps from from the air and they are able to integrate it with ground fire. And in 1918, you're having all kinds of different things. The British are experimenting with uh, coordinating with tanks, so air tank cooperation. So they'll put a wireless set in an aircraft and, and then try and help, you know, communicate to tanks where, you know, problems might be, enemy batteries might be. So there's an enormous development. And of course, those two big developments, of course, we, we haven't really talked about tanks too much. By 1918, tanks are really important as well. So there's, there's you know, there's, you can just go on all the different developments, the steel helmet, you know, lighter machine guns, it just goes on signals intelligence. By 1918, the war is totally different than the war was in 1914. It's unrecognisable. And I think that has never really been understood, certainly in the popular mind. That's never really been appreciated how different 1918 is. And were these innovations taking place on both sides or was this one of the reasons why the Allies got the upper hand over Germany? Well, they were and they weren't. Um, the Germans do a lot of innovation in terms of tactics. They, they, they've they got the Eastern Front. They can try things like infiltration tactics out. Um, although the French are experimenting with infiltration tactics in 1915, where essentially where you have fewer men and they're more widely spaced, they have different kinds of weapon systems, and their their point is to essentially evade the enemy so they to bypass trenches and stuff. It's very difficult to bypass trenches on the Somme because it's so thick. But the Germans can try this in the Eastern Front. The Germans never really developed tanks. They they don't see the need to do it. Uh, the, I think they developed the A7V, which is, again, it's not a particularly brilliant design, but they only have a handful of them. The Germans really, they are able to innovate in a human sense with, with infantry tactics pre- predominantly. Whereas the Allies see much more of the problem being a technological one that will require a technological solution. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons, certainly why the Allies invent tanks, is because they have the trench deadlock to cross and to work out. For Germany, they don't really need to do that. They're on the defensive in the West. They can practice in the Eastern Front. They can make more traditional type attacks in the East because the concentration of force there is so much lower but not on the West. So again, it's only too late the Germans realise that not having tanks is a major problem. But of course, you can't you can't develop and produce lots of tanks in you know in six months. It takes a long time. Beyond the technological advances, what do you see as the other main reasons for Germany's eventual defeat? And actually, how many of them were on the Western Front, and how much was it about broader things such as the naval blockade, U.S. entry into the war, and problems at home for Germany? I think Germany's problem is that there doesn't seem to be a a properly functioning method of making war, that the, the political and military ends don't really meet, or the, the political ends are too weak, and the military aims become out of control. So, you know, you, you have an idea that, you know, Germany should not have to compromise in victory. We've won in the East, we can reshape the world, whatever we want, and we're going to win decisively on the battlefield in the West. We're going to scatter our opponents and then dom- you know, dominate France. We're going to turn Belgium into a complete colony of Germany. We're going to dominate the continent. When sort of Soberhead should have said, well, you know, the, given the nature of the powers against you, Britain and France, major powers, global empires, ru- you know, ruthlessly committed to the war, 
there is going to have to be compromises. And a numerous German politicians, the Chancellor Bethmann Hollweg says this, so the German military high command, this is treasonous. So it has to be, for the German it's for the German army, it's almost like, well, we need to win totally or lose totally. The, there's no sort of assessment of we need to give the Allies something that will make it harder for them to continue the war rather than, well, we need to win on the battlefield decisively. So ultimately, Germany just can't do that in the West because she's against just too many people and they're too committed to the war. And once the Americans come in and once the Americans demonstrate their seriousness that they are committed to the war, then it's game over. And you know, the Germans make the, the gamble in 1918 to, to strike on the Western Front before the Americans can intervene in strength, which is a terrible gamble and ultimately fails. You know, had Germany taken a different approach in 1918, it would have been, you know, more difficult for the Allies to win, undoubtedly. But they they gamble and, and ultimately they lose. So I think, again, it's it's a similar thing, I think, in the Second World War, that the political and military aims are total and they're not reflective of the enormous costs of the war, the coalition nature of it, the fact that there will have to be compromises, which just cannot be envisaged by the German high command. And although famously an armistice was signed between the warring powers, it's right to say that the Germans were facing total defeat on the Western Front by the end. Yeah, their army's breaking apart. They, They are in full retreat. There's nowhere else they can go. Clearly, they're going to go back to the Rhine and go back to Germany. So the Western Front is lost. I, I guess the the question is, you know, could they have continued to resist into 1919? And, and they could have continued to resist at some level. It's very difficult for the Allies to keep going. The Allied armies are exhausted. Supply lines are long and stretched. Thousands upon thousands of starving civilians they have to look after. So the Allies are, are, are you know, are tiring out. Um but ultimately, the, the factor with the German decision-making is, yes, we might be able to continue resisting. Yes, we can we can probably make it difficult for the Allies. But, you know, the American army is going to be so strong in 1919 that it's going to destroy the German army totally in 1919 if it continues. So the decision is, well, just to stop now because it's not going to get any better because the Americans have demonstrated that that they are learning quickly and they are there in strength and they will you know, they will be able to do terrible damage to Germany if the war goes on. So why continue? And of course, for the German commanders, the big question now is not necessarily the war, but the peace. And they need to keep as much of the army together as they can to put down Bolshevism and and save Germany from revolution in 1919. Now, uh, coming on to the experiences of the ordinary soldiers themselves, what kind of view did they have of the fighting on the Western Front? Did they see it as this kind of prolonged deadlock or were they aware of all the changes that were going on? Yeah, you don't tend to get the disillusionment too much in the in the memoirs and the accounts of, of the people that I've looked at. I think it can come later on, of course, but I think certainly in the in the British sense, most felt that it was a war worth fighting. It was a necessary war. And of course, they don't necessarily see all of the trench deadlock. They will see elements of it, parts of it. They might see one or two days of battle on the Somme. And then as a battalion, they might not go into action again until the spring of 1917. So they will not see that. But I think clearly they are aware of all that is being put into the war. They're aware of all the kit they've got, all the training they're getting, or the the idea of they need to be doing this differently, they need to be doing that. So 
I think there is a sense, a real sense of this is a national effort and it's, you know, we've never, we never had this much support before. Look at all the maps we've given, look at all the supplies, ammunition, uniforms, we've got everything we want. So I think certainly for the British, there's a sense of, of, you know, general, I don't say happiness, but there's a sort of contentedness that they're doing what they're doing as good as they can. And there's no complaints about, you know, you get in other armies where they're starving and they have no uniforms and, um, you know, they're in occupied territory. So you don't necessarily get that with the British on the Western Front. In your piece, you write that modern warfare was forged on the Western Front. What evidence can we see of this in later conflicts? And I'm thinking particularly, say, of World War Two. Yeah, I mean, if you look at 1918, by the end of the war, you have air power is becoming so important. You've got to have a, you know, an air force. You've got to gain control of the air and increasingly use air power to influence the battlefield in a direct way. So, you know, bombing and strafing and as well as supporting the artillery. You've also, it's clearly recognised that tanks are going to play a major role in any future war. Um, they still have quite a lot of limitations in 1918. Um you know, but those technological problems will be solved. They're clearly a weapon of war. The Germans didn't make tanks really in the First World War. They do in for the Second World War. They know they're going to be a key weapon. Maneuver is key again. Logistical support. Um, so there's again, I think going back to the earlier point, by 1918 you can really see the origins of Blitzkrieg and and the kind of fast maneuver war that we see in the Second World War. And other than the the areas we've already discussed, are there any other aspects of the First World War or, or specifically the Western Front that you think we need to get a new understanding of? Well, I think the, the technology is one thing, but I think just certainly for the Allied side, it's, it's, the, it's the coalition aspect of it. It's the French War, which is largely, you know, apart from Verdun, maybe sort of slipped from, from popular consciousness if it was ever there in the first place. So I think just sort of understanding the coalition nature of the war, the fact that the Allies were able to work together, you know, to do something which was stronger than the individual parts of their their own forces. And again, look at the, you know, what the French are doing with tactics and technology. And I think that really helps to put the British story into context about the challenges that they were facing were similar challenges in many ways, but obviously doing it from a bigger starting point, whereas the British do it from a much smaller starting point because their army is much smaller. So, the coalition aspect is is an area of you know quite a lot of fantastic historical research over recent decades, and I think that will continue. That was Nick Lloyd. The Western Front, A History of the First World War, was published this month by Viking. And as I mentioned, you can read Nick's article in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which also has features on crusading queens, new discoveries about the Vikings and a forgotten figure of the Norman conquest. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. (laughs)